Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. When looking at financial markets, most of us tend to pay attention to stock index prices like the Dow Jones, the FTSE 100, the rates of bonds and currencies. But we should perhaps pay more attention to the physical stuff, the cables, the networks, the infrastructure, the chips and the code which tie markets together. And that's because the way the financial markets infrastructure is set up determines not just how shares and bonds are traded from a technical point of view, but they also determine who has the financial power. That's the opinion of John Handel, who's a financial historian and our interviewee on the latest episode of this podcast. In John's words, technical details are never just technical details. His specialist area of research, as as you'll hear in the podcast, is how 19th century financial markets were constructed from a physical point of view. The actual wires, cables, telegraph poles, roofs and buildings involved in relaying price information during a time of remarkable growth in the financial markets. John, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your area of research? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a six-year PhD candidate at Berkeley. I actually began working on, on in history. Uh, some of your British listeners may know uh, I studied the Oxford movement and John Henry Newman and 19th century British religious history for a long time before I sort of slowly began to get interested in, in 19th century finance. And my main interest uh, in it derived, I was reading about the history of the London Stock Exchange and about the 19th century banking system. And I was just sort of frustrated with the uh, the level of analysis and understanding of the actual operational details of how these institutions and how these historical markets worked. And I thought that there needed to be more detailed analysis and understanding of how historical markets were constructed and worked over the course of the 19th century. Um, and I ended up really focusing on 19th century markets because uh, in 1800, there are three stock exchanges in the world, Paris, Amsterdam, and London, and they're located you know, in coffee shops and alleyways. And by the end of the ni- 19th century, there's uh, almost 90 stock exchanges in the world and purpose-built buildings uh, that are all connected by some form of telecommunications. And that's a pretty, to me, this sort of original transformation and emergence of what we would consider the modern modern financial system and the modern network of financial markets. And, and to me, that was a, a history that really needed to be told and told at a level of, I think, technical sophistication and um, detail that was missing in, in a lot of the, the, the broader accounts of it. Okay, so let's 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 um, let's um, let's talk about some of the technology involved there. So, what um, what what enabled um, global stock trading to go from those three you know, European exchanges to being to being a global um, network of stock exchanges over a hundred years? What were the key kind of steps involved in getting there? <laughs> That's a, a good question. Um... So the, the, the simple answer, right, is the advent of telecommunications over the course of the 19th century. Um, you have the invention of the telegraph, the ticker tape, and the telephone are the three primary technologies that help interweave these markets. But um, these technologies didn't come, they didn't just sort of seamlessly weave together and integrate markets. They were deeply dependent on the different ways that infrastructure encoded uh, particular sort of power imbalances into how messages were were communicated and, and flowed. And so London, for instance, had um, an especial privilege and a special uh, position of power over the rest of the, the world at this time. It benefited on the one hand, of course, from the 
hegemony of the British Empire in the 19th century, such that London was the telecommunicative hub of really the entire world. Um, there's a, a, a great book um, on, on 19th century telegraphy that actually measures the sort of between the centrality of London and versus other telegraphic centers uh, in Europe. And it's it becomes basically the offloading point for most uh, telegraphy that is coming from North America, that is coming from the British colonies, that is coming from Europe, all sort of has to pass through London before it can get filtered to one of the other regions. So London in particular benefits from this infrastructural position um, as the the world power at, the, at that moment that begins to weave together, um, that begins to stand on its feet, I should say, um, a telegraphic network that can actually connect stock exchanges and connect financial markets. I should say at that point, uh, John, that, that I actually live in uh, southeast London, very close to the place where Francis Rowlands uh, um, created the first uh, electric telegraph in 1816. So, so I'm familiar with that, that a bit of that history, and it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of a cl- close to me, even though I'm currently cut off from Hammersmith by the, the closure of Hammersmith Bridge, which has taken place. Anyway, sorry for that uh, digression. No, no, that's uh, it's. Well, one of the things that strikes me, too, about um, the history of these technologies, right, is how um, they still shaped in a lot of ways and continue to shape the, the geographies uh, of the financial system today, uh, especially even down in London. Obviously, the London Stock Exchange is no longer in the same place that it was historically during the 19th and uh, early to mid 20th century. But um, you can still sort of see a lot of the the, the basic sort of telegraph wires or and the, the cables that carry these telegraph wires are still key to to broadly global communications, especially between these financial centers. So these technologies and these infrastructures, especially that are originally laid in the 19th century, have a very long afterlife and continue to have sort of importance to how the rest of the financial system uh, was shaped. Um, and of course, right, it's it's as one of the, the key themes in your, your podcast has been. Um, how it's it's very difficult to innovate new technologies when you're trying to escape the legacy of older infrastructures that had had previously underpinned forms of financial behavior, and so that's I think a key a key way that 19th century telecommunications um, has continued to shape our, our financial markets today. Right, and and you recently published on Twitter a, a thread, a very what I found a very interesting thread about the way um, different commercial interests had to compete to. Uh, use that informa- stock price information that was uh, being transmitted from the London Stock Exchange, um, it, it, and how you know w- how that created different power interests. Could you explain to listeners a little bit about what you've been researching and what you found out? Yeah, um, it's a a long and complicated story, obviously, um, and there's there's many different players. And I I think one of the things I try and talk about in my my dissertation that I'm working on is how it's it's really um, unhelpful to think of the telegraphic system, the ticker tape system, the telephonic system as one coherent object. Um, In fact, we need to really consider it as something that's um, a knotty, very nodal, uh, very particular network that is pieced together by a a host of different uh, agents, whether that's uh, particular financial firms, whether that's particular financial markets like the London Stock Exchange or the private and public companies that ran telecommunications in the 19th century. Um, For instance, so the the thread you're referencing just talks a little bit about how uh, the Exchange Telegraph Company, 
which was the, the company that brought the ticker tape to the London Stock Exchange for the first time, had to compete with not only other companies to provide a ticker tape service to London, they eventually got an, an exclusive monopoly, uh, but they were all always threatened by other competitors that were trying to provide the same service. Um, but they had this monopoly, but not only were they threatened by other ticker tape providing companies, they were also threatened by the simply other telecommunications companies that were jockeying for the same infrastructural space. Um, so to anyone who's familiar with uh, the current city of London, the Royal Exchange is uh, still very prominent. Um, it's right, right there when you get off at Bank Station. And in the 19th century, um, to the north of the Royal Exchange was uh, immediately the London Stock Exchange in between Throgmorton and Threadneedle Street. On the south side of the Royal Exchange is Cornhill. And Cornhill was where the Exchange Telegraph Company had their headquarters. It's where a host of other telegraph companies had um, uh, at least offices. And so the roof over the Royal Exchange, where these telegraph companies could lead wires into the London Stock Exchange, was a critical piece of, um, of, of space in, in the 19th century. And there was only a limited amount of roof space of telegraph poles and way leaves that could be put up over the Royal Exchange roof. And so there was a huge competition um, and, and very limited set of sort of material possibilities and affordances that, that telegraphic companies could actually put wires in over, over the Royal Exchange. And so this very small space um, has sort of strict limitations and provided a, a really contentious site of politics for a lot of the ways that telegraph companies interacted with the London Stock Exchange in the 19th and early 20th century. So, and so that, that obviously has a kind of d direct historical echo in, in the battle for speed between the major high frequency trading firms who, um, you know, were initially reliant on the existing cables between financial centers, but then started erecting their own microwave masts, you know, all across the uh, United States and between London and the other financial centers. Uh, so it's a kind of a, a recurrent theme in finance, this battle over infrastructure. Yeah. And um, so I would, I would say two things to that. One is that I think distinctly new to the 19th century is what I call in my dissertation, the, the birth of a material politics of finance, where questions about market access, about um, market fairness, um, are mediated not purely by the, the, the question of who has access to financial markets, but how, uh, which, is by, which is to say by um, particular material infrastructural connections to these markets begin to overdetermine the ways that, that people in general can have access, whether that's competitions between different tele, telecommunications firms to provide the best services, uh, or if that's competitions between different markets for better positions within the telegraphic network, uh, or even one, one more level down between firms for, for telegraphic uh, apparatuses that they could be connected to. Um, and this is really a product of the, the, the first product of the, the birth of 19th century financial markets. So how did those questions get resolved um, when it came to, you know, those competing interests in 19th century London? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's in, in many ways um, the story I'm trying to tell. Uh, in, so, I mean, there's a long history to this. I would say it begins roughly with the, the creation of the Telegraph. Um, the London Stock Exchange itself doesn't get a, a 
special telegraph office until 1851, which is relatively late in the process after telegraphs have been invented. But one of the things that happens over the course of the 19th century is that the financial system, the London Stock Exchange in particular, makes itself central to the broader public telecommunications network that is being erected, which is to say in the early, the early part of the 19th century, um, telegraph companies, when they were still private, had to really cater to uh, the business of the London Stock Exchange because it was such a uh, crucial driver of telecommunications in the early days. Um, the Electric Telegraph Company, which is uh, the first to open an office in the London Stock Exchange, um, gives them, uh, it's, it's basically the London Stock Exchange gives them free rent uh, in hopes that they will get sort of preferential treatment on the delivery of messages and whatnot. Um, this doesn't really happen. And so the, you, almost immediately after uh, they, the London Stock Exchange managers realize that the, the Electric Telegraph Company is not really privileging their their forms of communication, they begin opening, throwing open the doors of the London Stock Exchange to, to numerous telegraphic companies to, to compete. Um, but one of the, the big things that happens over the course of this time, and especially after the GPO nationalizes the inland telegraphs in 1870, is that um, financial markets broadly begin trying to find ways to privatize, de facto privatize and monopolize what are essentially public telegraphic infrastructure. So the London Stock Exchange, when it goes through um, a rebuilding process in the 1850s, uh, is very conscious about locating its telegraph office um, within deep within the London Stock Exchange, such that uh, no member of the public could accidentally wander in. Um, and this is a, a technique that's deployed by many stock exchanges throughout the course of the 19th century, the Liverpool and Manchester Stock Exchanges, for instance, um, when they are going through rebuilds in the 1870s and 80s, the, the post office threatens them. They say, basically, you know, if we're going to provide you a telegraph service, it needs to be open to the public. Uh, and the Manchester and Liverpool Stock Exchanges uh, respond by only offering to lease the post office telegraph offices on the second and third floor of the stock exchange so that no members of the public are actually allowed in. And so over the course of the 19th century, you see these uh, different techniques deployed by financial markets to slowly cordon off and monopolize a lot of these public wires. And as they do so, um, the GPO and its public telegraph services become more and more interdependent and intertwined with um, the work of the financial system, such that by the end of the 19th century, I wouldn't say that the financial system and stock exchanges get to have the final say over how the telegraph uh, and telephonic systems work, but they have a much bigger seat at the table than they otherwise would have because their business is not only is their business so key to driving revenues for the GPO, but the infrastructure is the physical laying of wires, the creation of offices and circuits is so heavily dependent on stock exchanges as uh, communicative hubs that it's um, almost impossible for the GPO to do any sort of telegraphic expansion or uh, renovation without um, consulting and, and catering to, to the needs of the financial sector. Hmm. What, what relevance do you think these um, you know, historical events have for today's financial markets? <laughs> That's sort of uh, the big question that I 
continue to grapple with all the time is, you know, why, why do history and this current age of uh, uh, immense sort of crisis and change that we're living to that demands so much attention on, on the present. Um, like I said earlier, I think the big, the big story and the reason why 19th century financial markets and, and looking at this period is important is because as the 20th century went along, I think financial markets have become more opaque and closed off. And this is mostly by design. Um, some of that is reopening up again with new innovations in financial technology. Um, but for instance, uh, I think it's still, we're, we're still sort of seeing the, um, the long tail of infrastructural monopolies over financial information. If you don't have a Bloomberg terminal, for instance, it's very difficult to do any sort of, uh, get a lot of the sort of basic financial information and knowledge that you would need to operate on a, on a middle to high level, I think, in financial markets, right? And, and there's this, been this one company that has provided one infrastructural service that has been able to monopolize a lot of financial, the transmission of financial information. In the 19th century, what you have is um, instead of a sort of final um, resolution to that, you have, a, a, for the first time, a bunch of people trying to make this system work. And so they try a bunch of different answers. There is a host of different solutions and problems that come up in, in the connection of financial markets. And some, some, some ways that they try it are better than others, and some ways get foreclosed over the 19th century. But by the sort of early 20th century, we can begin to see the outlines of, of how the system has been erected and where its sort of powerful centers are and how they have come to benefit from longer infrastructural developments that encode certain advantages into the, the very material fabric of the financial system itself. Hmm. I mean, we talk, obviously, the 19th century period of, uh, you know, the, the peak of the British Empire, um, uh, that's kind of uh, arguably gone into a period of the, of the American Empire during the, the 20th century. But now we're faced with a much more multipolar world. We've got the, the you know, invention of new technologies such as uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain that promise a, a much more decentralized approach to, to trading. You know, how significant do you think this latest uh uh, these latest developments are in, in technology and the way that things are traded. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I have too much different to say about this than, than many of your other uh, guests who, who know more about the sort of current state of things. But one of the comparisons that I would, I would throw out of why things like Bitcoin are actually a, a pretty substantial innovation that deserves, um, I think, critical attention um, and I say critical attention from the sort of more scholarly community, as opposed to sort of um, the, you know, I'm from, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time. There were plenty of uh, Bitcoin fanatics that didn't really yeah. understand how, how it worked from a, a critical angle, but really were into the yeah. culture of it. Um, and I, I think these technologies deserve a, a critical, uh, really uh, deserve a lot of critical attention because um, of the, the settlement structure. Um, Again, this, this is probably stuff you know, but one of the interesting things uh, that's of why 19th century telecommunications was in fact not particularly revolutionary to financial markets was because it did not affect settlement structure at all. You could have an investor in Edinburgh telegraphing his stock exchange order to his broker in London, and where that might have taken a week, it only took 20 minutes uh, by 1870. But however... Um, that order still had to 
get sent from the sort of slip that it was marked on the stock exchange floor down to the clerk in the, uh, the checking room who would check the bargain at the end of the day that would then be sent to a sort of broader account book that would get evened out um, during the settling day, which could be three weeks away, that could be one week away um, before any sort of certificates and money was actually exchanged. Uh, and it would be another, you know, week before the the investor in Edinburgh actually got his his stock. So even though tele, telegraphic technologies and, and telecommunications sped up the the speed of floor transactions during the 19th century, it didn't actually really affect the sort of bottom line, um, uh, the the settlement and clearing functions. I agree with you. That's where the you know the, the potential innovation uh, is very important for you know for these distributed uh, networks because their settlement happens in a totally different way. And uh, it's a very, to me, that's a very significant uh, invention. And, and I would only say that I think, in fact, a lot of these, these new technologies that we're, we're dealing with today, like blockchain, um, rather than I think, um, let me put it this way, instead of giving a historical perspective to these new technologies, I think the changes that these new technologies have brought is actually sort of highlighted to me a different way of viewing history, um, which is to say that a lot of scholars and a lot of people that have looked at financial markets in the past have sort of just taken for granted that the telegraph, the telephone, the ticker tape all sort of sped up transactions, but they were only looking at a very particular part of the transaction. They were There was not as much attention to settlement and, and clearing. And there has been some really good work on this um, as a sociologist at University of California, San Diego, who's written a great book, um, Juan Pablo Partaguera, on the automating of finance that really takes seriously the, the settlement function as um, uh, a key sort of site of technological transformation in the 20th century, uh, the mid-20th century. But yeah, I think the, the way these technologies are, are changing the, the current operations and markets has prompted me to look at history differently rather than to use history to try and explain their emergence, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, that's a very uh, thank you. It's a very interesting um, observation. I mean, I, so what you're saying is that you know we should not just look at the impact of technologies like the telegraph or the telephone in speeding up the way trading happened or any kind of commerce happened. We should look at the the role that these technologies played in creating particular hubs for um, the actual movement of, of funds, uh, and, and that that was as as important in cementing London's position or New York's position or in the 20th century, other financial centers, which is as the centers of those, um, as the cent- as, as financial centers. And then that had a kind of knock-on effect on the power, I suppose, of the country's concerned. That's exactly right. Um, and if I might be permitted to tell two of my, my favorite stories that are, I think, uh, illustrative of how we should really think about this in a again, less of an abstract way about the telegraph system as a system and more about the actual technical materialities of it on the ground. Um, my, my two examples that I love uh, sharing is that in uh, the late 1880s, the mid-1880s, the London Stock Exchange goes through a, a massive renovation. And for the first time, instead of just being a set of um, buildings that are kind of next to each other where markets are a bit jumbled, the entire stock exchange is finally enclosed and there are telegraph offices and telephone offices that are placed around the perimeter of the exchange. Uh, and in turn, the exchange reorders the positions of a lot of markets from where they had been traditionally so that they make sense uh, and are connected to the telegraph office that they would do the most work with. 
There is one market, however, within the London Stock Exchange that's very upset about this, and that's the English consoles market. So basically the market for, for English state debt. Um, yeah, because they are they are a market uh, that does not rely heavily on telegraphic uh, communication in the same way that say the market the market for American securities did, and so the English console market gets moved from under the main dome of the London Stock Exchange and it gets shunted off into a, a very tight corner. And there are all these petitions and letters from brokers and jobbers in that market complaining about how they have lost all of their space, all of their desks, all of their sort of physical facilities that they needed to complete their transactions um, because so many other markets became, quote, you know, we would think rationalized or or um, were given more efficient spaces near telegraphic markets. They actually sort of had a, a decrease in what we would think of as their efficiency. Um, and the only other thing I would, the other story I would, I would, I would uh, use to illustrate again how these sort of power disparities were, were cemented and fractured and really sort of dependent on the infrastructure, the technology you used in your position in the network. Um, the Liverpool Stock Exchange, which was the second biggest in Britain for most of the 19th century, wanted to compete with London uh, with European trading, especially because of Liverpool's close associations with uh, cotton manufacturing, cotton shipping. Um, because of that, it had very close relations with a lot of German cities that were, were doing a lot of these manufacturing and had a lot of shared financial securities amongst different German stock exchanges. But Liverpool, um, all of its telegraphic messages tended to get lumped in with other foreign telegraphs from the north of England that would then get filtered down through London and then get passed to any foreign stock exchange. Uh, so Liverpool begins to try and lay direct wires into some German towns like Hamburg and Bremen, which had smaller stock exchanges, but which were dealing in a lot of shared securities with Liverpool. Um, but again, the sort of um, affordances and limitations of the actual material of telegraphing came into play. All Liverpool had on these direct wires were um, a simplex telegraph system where you can only send one message at a time on a wire as opposed to a duplex system or a quadruplex system that would allow you to send two or four messages uh, each way on a wire. So basically, um, the merchants and the brokers in these German towns, when they knew Liverpool agents were trying to uh, place orders on the German stock exchanges uh, or do some sort of arbitrage activity, they would often flood these simplex wires with nonsense messages that would just go one way and prevent Liverpool brokers from really being able to do anything at all except through London wires. And that's called that's called spoofing in uh, modern day uh, high high frequency trading. Exactly jargon. the, the yeah, historical yeah. version of that. Yeah, but yeah. and again too. How fascinating. Yeah, and, and it's the the trick to this though is that there was just only so many wires that could be laid in in a certain direction, and there were very strict hard limits to to the the capabilities of the telegraph and the telephone to handle these kind of businesses. Um, and so there were some places that were able to develop these in really powerful ways like London. Uh, and there were other places that as much as they could try and as many resources they put into it really just couldn't um, build up the same kind of, of infrastructural centers and technological apparatuses to, to conduct financial trading in the same way. I would say we're, we're in a mode in so many ways, right, where um, the, the old world is dying, but the new world is still struggling to be born. And um, political crises aside, I think this is as much a, an infrastructure problem as anything else. We are saddled with, with sets of infrastructures um, 
that go back not just into the 20th century, but really the late 19th century, and to develop any sort of decentralized mechanism that gets away from that is not just a process of simple technical innovation, but a process of real political will and power. Um, That's, that's, I suppose, what I would, I would just say, right, is that uh, to impose any sort of real meaningful systemic change on, on infrastructures takes a lot more than simply getting the technology right. I, my, the last sort of story that I, I share historically that I think illustrates this is that um, um, I'm writing about this now. Uh, Emile Baudot, who is a, a French telegraphist, came up with a, a quadruplex tele- telegraphic system in, in the 1870s. And it was probably one of the fastest, most efficient telegraphing systems. Um, and it was very highly sought after by financial markets. But uh, the problem was in connecting any sort of Bordeaux systems is that, one, his telegraph apparatus was much more expensive than others. And so it was only sort of slowly adopted by different national telegraphic systems. So, for instance, France adopts it early, but Britain doesn't. And so it's a struggle for British financial markets to communicate over these Bordeaux apparatuses. And then the second thing is that it was not easy to simply switch um, in a transatlantic or Uh, uh, cross-channel wire, Uh, a telegraph cable would usually have seven telegraphic wires in it. It was not easy to sort of simply switch one to quadruplex working, while other wires in the same cable were doing simplex or duplex working. There would be tons of interference. One quadruplex wire could affect the rest of the wires working in, in the system or in the same cable. And so the actual process of shifting the entire financial telegraphing system based in London, but connected to the major centers in Paris, Berlin, and elsewhere into a more efficient telegraphic service. Was one of It took immense time. These don't really actually get connected until the 1910s and 1920s, because it, it took so long for these um, this technological innovation that Badeau made to actually be systemically employed and uh, updated in the, the infrastructures itself. And so that, that would be, I think, my, if I had some bigger takeaway, it's that this yeah. making real systematic changes to infrastructure takes much more than, than technical innovation. Yeah. John, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat. I've found the topic really interesting and I appreciate you taking the time to chat to me and uh, to share your views with our listeners. Thank you. I'm uh, very, uh, very honored and delighted to, uh, to come on. Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.